Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. If I was to ask you to introduce yourself to somebody, if I was to uh, put a stranger in front of you uh, and say, I want you to tell this person who you are, I wonder what you'd tell them. I wonder what you would instinctively want to say about yourself to this person as a way of communicating who at your core you are. The way you answer that question would probably depend on a number of different things. One of them would be where in the world you grew up. That might inform the way you answer the question. Maybe what point in history you grew up as well. So for some people, what you would want to do first and foremost is you'd want to tell them where you come from. You'd tell them about the place that you were brought up in, maybe the place you were born. Tell them about the town that you grew up in, the village, the city, whatever it might be. And you'd tell them about your family. You'd tell them about your parents. You'd tell them about any brothers and sisters that you've got. You might tell them about your spouse and your kids. Maybe even you'd tell them multiple generations of your family tree. And so you'd place yourself into a network of community. And that would be the number one thing about yourself that you'd want to convey. And if you do that, if that's the way you'd be inclined to introduce yourself, this is what people sometimes call ascribed identity. You're taking your identity from where you come from. If, on the other hand, you grew up where I grew up, when I grew up, then it's much more common that the way you would introduce yourself isn't about your community, about your place or your people. It's about what you've done. It's about what you've achieved. So most of my mates who grew up where I grew up, if they were introducing themselves, the first thing they tell you maybe after their name is what their job is. They tell you what they do. They might tell you some of the accomplishments that they've got in life, what, what title they have reached. I'm a manager, I'm a director, I do this thing, and so I have significance. They might tell you about a responsibility they've been given at a place that they volunteer, or or some kind of award that they've achieved. So this is achieved identity. Or some people, and this is more for people who have grown up more recently, perhaps, would do this. They'd say, actually, no, 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 the, the most important thing about who I am, it's not what other people say, it's not what other people think, it's not about uh, where I grew up or how I'm connected in that way. It's not even about what standards or levels I've reached, it's who I think I am. Deep down, the real me inside is what I want to tell everybody about. Maybe uh, you see themes like this in the film Frozen, there's the real me, everyone's holding me back, I've just got to let it go and get the real me into the world. Now, I'm not saying that any of these are better than any others. There's things about them all. It's just what we lean into. But what I am saying to you this morning is this. This question about who are you, about identity, about knowing who you really are, it's a question that many of us struggle with. It's a question that leaves many of us confused as we try to answer the question, maybe not just to introduce ourselves to a stranger, but deep down in our hearts, in our souls, as we're wrestling with questions about ourselves, often we struggle to answer this question, who really am I? That's what I want to speak into this morning. I want to help us think about who we are. 
But to do that, I'm going to just answer another question first and then come back to it. I'm going to start by asking this question. How did Jesus know who he was? How did Jesus know who he really was? And I want us to look at two verses from Luke's gospel. So Luke chapter 3 is where I'm going to be a little bit for the first part of this message. And then we'll dip into Romans 8 and think about how we know who we are. But let's look at Luke 3. And how did Jesus know who he was? Verse 21 and 22 say this. Now when all the people were baptised... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Just think about what it's saying. So set the scene. It's a baptism. John the Baptist has been preaching a message of repentance. He was the forerunner of Jesus and he he was getting ready uh, for for God to do an amazing work. He was preparing the people uh, and in response people were going down to the river and he was baptizing them in a baptism of repentance. And then Jesus showed up and said, I want to be baptized as well. Uh, and John was a little confused. He said, well, you want to be baptized, but you're the one who this is all about. But Jesus was identifying himself with the whole people of God. God wasn't just into saving individuals. You know that, right? God's not just doing a work in you individually. God's making himself a people. The reason God saves individuals is to get himself a people from all the nations of the earth. That's what God's doing. And so Jesus was identifying himself with that people he was baptized and he was praying I love that little aside that Jesus was praying because I think surely if there's anybody in the whole of human history who might have been okay without prayer it was Jesus by nature of him being the divine son and yet he was praying if Jesus needed to pray this isn't even my preach today by the way but if Jesus needed to pray how much more do we need to pray right yeah he was there praying and what happened the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. We've been thinking about the Holy Spirit a lot these last few weeks, haven't we? And we've been calling out to God to pour out his Holy Spirit on us. Well, here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he poured out his Holy Spirit on Jesus. And this is meant to be a parallel to the day of Pentecost. Luke wrote his book in two volumes, Luke and Acts. And they both start with someone there in prayer. So you've got Jesus praying. You've got the early church praying in the upper room. In both instances, prayer, Holy Spirit poured out. Prayer, Holy Spirit poured out. We're meant to see that link. And then all the things that Jesus went about doing, we sometimes think, or I do anyway, well, Jesus, he kind of had the cheat code on life because by by nature of being God, he, he obviously did things I couldn't do. He was playing on easy mode and I've got to play on hard. And, and yet we're not meant to see that. We're meant to see the link between Jesus, the spirit-filled man, and the spirit-filled church. The things that he did now because we we have the same spirit dwelling within us are things that we can do in fact teaching his disciples about this before he died rose again and went to heaven Jesus said in John chapter 14 truly truly I say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father He went to the Father and poured out the Spirit on his church so that we could do the things that he did. 
So if you want a picture of what does it look like to be spirit-filled, we're talking about being spirit-filled. What does that look like? Read the gospel, see what Jesus did, see how he lived, and that's our model of the spirit-filled man. So Jesus had the spirit poured out upon him, and then it says a voice came from heaven that said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Recently in my personal devotional times, I've been reading chapter five of John's gospel. Uh, And in that chapter, what's happening is Jesus is explaining to the people the witnesses to who he is. And he calls on all different witnesses. He talks about John the Baptist. He talks about the scriptures. He talks about the works that he's doing. But he says, actually, I don't even need to call any of those witnesses, really, because the voice of God has given witness to who I am. I mean, imagine being there by the river that day and you hear the audible voice of God booming over the whole scene. You are my beloved son. Wouldn't that just radically shape your life if you hear God the Father's audible voice declaring this man? as his son. It's no wonder that people like John, people like Peter, who'd been around on that day, referred to it in their writings decades later. It's a shaping moment, isn't it, when the voice of God speaks and speaks identity over his son. That Jesus was the eternal son, that since before the creation of the world, he'd been the son living in perfect relationship with the father. And then as he came to earth, he could say, I only do what I see my father doing. He was leaning in to that relationship. And it's really interesting then when you read through John after this, what comes next is the genealogy. Uh, And it's like Jesus was the son of, the son of, the son of. And it goes back to the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So if you're the sort of person who, when you talk about identity, you go to, to connecting into community to see where you fit in a family, you can see that Jesus, he fits into this family that goes right back to when God first created the world. His identity can be spoken of that way. And then you read into Luke chapter 4, and when Jesus is being tempted, he's been offered the invitation to base his identity on what he's done, because the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, Prove it to me, show, do son of God kind of things by turning the bread into stone. Understand who you are on the basis of what you've done. And Jesus declines that opportunity and says, no, I know who I am on the basis of what God said. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that's come from the mouth of God. And then later in Luke 4, he goes into the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And what's he doing? He's declaring his identity. No matter what other people might think of him, he said, I know from deep down, this is who I am. I'm the son. But do you see how all of these, they flow from this prior moment that God has spoken, that God has told him who he is. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. The father calls him beloved. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't start by saying, hey, Jesus, I've got a job for you. He starts by saying, I love you. Again, this is not my sermon today, but this is a little aside for any parents here. Tell your kids you love them. Do it often. It makes a difference. And he says, with you, I am well pleased. 
Now just think about it for a second. What had Jesus done at this point? What had he actually done? What miracles had he done? What amazing works had he performed? None. He'd just spent 30 years anonymously working in this little small town, working in his stepfather's business, just being an ordinary person. He'd done nothing for God to say, with you I am well pleased. And you know, it's almost as though the father's good pleasure in his son isn't based on some amazing thing he did, but it's because the father loves him and he's pleased with him because he's pleased with him. He just is. So if that's how Jesus knew who he was, if that's how he got his identity from the father speaking identity to him, my question is this, dare we settle for anything less? Dare we settle for anything less when it comes to our own identity? How do you know who you are? Let's jump into Romans 8. The last few weeks we've been looking a little bit in Romans 8 and I want to go back there and pick out three more verses from it. So Luke 8 verses 14 to 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let's just pick out what's going on here. All who are led by the Spirit of God. Now, I know Sam spoke about this last week. I also know that some of you probably weren't here when Sam spoke about it last week. So I just want to very, very briefly give you uh, a, a little thought on this. We're led by the Spirit. And I think that's just a really important phrase because sometimes when I think about what the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life, I default to something quite passive. I default to basically, all right, I'm doing the thing. I'm living my life for Jesus. I've got all these plans and schemes and he comes along and he helps me do the things that I've decided to do. Uh, That's how I sometimes think of it. And it really helps me to read a verse like this because it shows that's not the case at all. It's not like I'm leading and he's helping. He's leading and my whole life then is directed into following where he leads. It's a different dynamic. This last week I was listening to a a preach by Pastor Derwin Gray, really good Bible teacher. And he talks about how sometimes he hears people use this phrase, I'm living for Jesus. I'm living for Jesus, Pastor. And when he said it, I thought, yeah, I said that. I said that all the time. I'm living for Jesus. It's a phrase that I used. But when he talked about it, it made me realize that even saying that betrays the fact that I'm starting with what I'm doing. It's the life that I'm living. And yes, Jesus might motivate it. And yes, I might have good objectives, but I'm still relying on my own strength and my own power to do it. And he says, you're living for Jesus. I thought he rose from the dead. It seems like you and I need him to live through us. Do you see that's different? It's not just I'm living for Jesus with a little bit of help but that he's living through me, the resurrection power of Christ in me. It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. He's the one alive. We're the ones born spiritually dead. And I think as we see this and as we see the need, not just to live for Jesus with a little bit of help from him, but to live thoroughly with him living in us, through us, it's him taking the lead. Now, maybe that sounds a bit radical to you. Maybe you listen to me, that sounds a bit full on. Shall I tell you what it's called? 
It's called Christianity. That's what it is. That's what this whole thing actually is. Jesus in me, the hope of glory. You know, Jesus didn't just die and rise again to sit in the passenger seat and yield to the all-surpassing wisdom of Tom O'Toole. That's not how this thing works. He came to take charge because he knows best and it's his life in me. So all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, when I say sons of God, this isn't a male-female thing. The word sons is used because in that culture, it would have been the sons who got the inheritance. But he's talking about sons and daughters, men and women adopted as children of God. That's who we are. That's the identity that we have. But you might think, hang on, hang on a second, because you've just been talking about Jesus. and I know the Trinity stuff, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't Jesus the Son? Aren't we getting the categories mixed up? Let me tell you the truth this morning. Because of what Jesus has done, everything that was spoken over him as the Son is spoken over you and me as well. We've been brought in to the family. We are now in Christ So the status that he has is the status that we have. Everything God said over him, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Those words are not only for Jesus now, those words are for you. And I want you to receive them this morning. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. And when we hear those words, And when we receive those words into our lives, they change everything. Because we start to find acceptance in those words. It's so easy. I do this all the time. I I think, well, if I do this thing, then maybe I'll be all right. If If I have this role, if I have this position, if I do well in this thing, if I don't give in to this sin, if I keep my Bible devotional times each day, if I have this role in church, if I have a good response to something I do, if a lot of people turn up at a group that I run, whatever it might be, then I'll be all right, then I'll be accepted, then my life will have meaning and significance. And ultimately, that just comes back to me living for Jesus rather than letting him live through me. A couple of years ago, we I'd been leading a site of CCM in the city centre. Then when the pandemic started, we we pulled that site back in. It was the right thing to do. And yet it did something in me that I had to go on a bit of a journey with it because my identity suddenly came into question. There'd been this thing that I'd been doing. And then uh, it's been maybe two years that it's taken me to realise this. But so much of who I was had been wrapped around it, that I was the person doing this thing. I was the person who had this role. And when it was gone and when I wasn't doing it anymore, that left a hole. Who who am I? What does this say about me? And I've been having to relearn afresh. That never was my identity. That never was who I am. Who I am is a son of God, dearly beloved. And I've been having to learn that all over again. Many of you have the the same things, maybe not exactly uh, expressed in the same way, but you'll have things you're doing. You'll have roles in your workplace. You'll have things in the family. You'll have responsibilities in the church. And it's so easy that we wrap that. I'm accepted if this thing goes well, and we miss the fact we're accepted before we even did that because we're chosen by God and brought into his family. We find acceptance We also find affection. Do you know God loves you? It's not just like he tolerates you. God loves you. The writer Summer Shaw said this. 
In our culture of comparison and striving for recognition and validation, it's a surreal thought that we can be loved just as we are. It's a downright mind-blowing thought that we could be loved when we're at less than our best. But in Christ, beloved is exactly what we are. Not based on our accomplishments or merit or charm, but because God created us, knows us fully and delights in us still. God loves you. We also find affirmation. He says, I'm well pleased. Now remember, what had Jesus done when God said over him, I am well pleased? He'd done nothing. And God says over you, I am well pleased. Not on the basis of what you've done. He's pleased with you. He affirms you. Let me illustrate this. I've got a nine-year-old son called Sam. He's been getting up early in the mornings and he's been going on the laptop and he's been writing this little story. And the the other day, I I had a read of this story that he'd been writing. uh, And my heart absolutely melted as I was reading this work. Now, full disclosure, it's not going to win a Pulitzer Prize, okay? It's not like the work itself I was blown away by. This is the best work of fiction I've ever read. But my heart was melted by it more than any story I've read in ages. Why? Because I love the little guy. I love the socks off him. He's awesome. I'm pleased with him, not on the basis of this thing that he's done, but I'm pleased in this thing because I love him so much. And that's how God is. He loves you and he's pleased with you. So let's read on. It says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Some of you know this all too well, the way identity, particularly if you don't uh, have this sense of who you are in God, identity can really hold you in fear. Maybe if you lean too much on, well, people from where I'm from, people in my family, we couldn't possibly do that. And this sense of expectation on you can hold you back from living for God, or if you go in for, um, oh, well, my identity is based on what I do. I couldn't possibly try this thing, because what if it doesn't work? What will people think of me then? What if this doesn't go right? And so we're held back. What if the me that I present to the world isn't acceptable? What if other people don't like it? So we, we, we shrink back. We avoid some of the stuff God's calling us to because of identity questions. I, I heard... A while ago, how people hold elephants in captivity. You've probably heard the story before. It's done the rounds. But but what they do is they get a little baby elephant, they tie a big rope to its leg, and they tie it around a thick post. And this baby elephant will try and move its leg, but because it's tied up by this rope, it won't have the strength, and so it can't move. But obviously, baby elephants don't stay as baby elephants forever. Baby elephants grow into big elephants. And big elephants have a lot of power. And this rope that can hold a baby elephant, could it hold a big elephant? No. But it doesn't need to. Because what's happened is this baby elephant has got conditioned into it. Well, I'm, I'm held here. I can't move. So I won't even try I won't pull against it anymore so you get this big elephant held by this rope that shouldn't have the strength to hold it and so then they they start replacing the rope with a thinner rope and a thinner rope so just these little flimsy threads and and the post no longer needs to be a big sturdy post it can just be like a, a a little stick in the ground but when that's there the elephant's conditioned itself in fear and in slavery I cannot step out of this anymore that's the spirit of slavery 
And for many of us, th this is how identity is. It's like we've conditioned ourselves into, I couldn't possibly do X. I couldn't possibly live radically for God in this world. I couldn't possibly do the things that he's calling me to do because I'm held by this sense of identity. And it, in a few minutes, there'll be an opportunity. I want to pray for some people who are in that place. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Adoption is when you make a choice to bring somebody into the closest possible family relationship with you. It's an amazing thing. You welcome someone into your home. You give them your name. You give them an inheritance. You bear the cost for, your, for their needs. You pour yourself out for their thriving. I know here at CCM Gorton, we have some adoptive parents. I would highly commend you. I'd say well done to you. And I'd say you're a picture of what God has done for us. And by whom? By this spirit in us, we cry. What do we cry? Abba, Father. Now, that's not talking about the Swedish pop band. <laughs> when he says Abba, it's a word for, for a father. But it's a word, we don't really have an exact English equivalent. It's a word that has both intimacy and respect. Maybe one of the closest uh, ones we'd have is Daddy. The only problem with daddy is in English, it's a word that kids use. Adults don't really use daddy or that option. It sounds childish. Well, Abba had the same sense to it, but was totally appropriate for adults to use as well. It's closeness, intimacy and respect. Maybe the best equivalent we've got is just dad. But that's what we get to call God. Sometimes you hear people pray as though God's distant and unapproachable. They might as well start the prayer with like, dear sir slash madam. Or to whom it may concern. And they're writing as though God's a long way off and they don't know him. We're invited to come to God as our father, to intimately draw near to him. Now, I don't know what your human dad has been like, but what I do know is this. Where human dads may have been absent, our heavenly father says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Where human dads may have made you earn their approval. He lavishes his grace upon you. Our heavenly father accepts you as you are. Where human dads may have been neglectful or abuseful. Our heavenly father pours out every spiritual blessing on you. And where human dads may have done well by their kids. How much more will our heavenly father bless all those who he calls his sons and daughters? J.R. Packer says, what is a Christian? The richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. So let's be a church, CCM, that knows how to relate to God as father by the Holy Spirit. And the verses close out by saying, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You might be thinking, how do I know this is true? This is just Tom telling me that I am a child of God. It's not just Tom telling you you're a child of God. It's the Holy Spirit. This is what he does as he fills you, as he indwells you. He's in your heart and he's whispering this to you. He's telling you right at the core of your being, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're loved. God is pleased and the Holy Spirit is at work in you, telling you who you are. Do you see what happened to Jesus? He was filled with the Spirit, and then God affirmed his identity. And what happens to us? 
It's exactly the same. We're filled with the spirit and God affirms our identity. You are a child of God. So if you're the sort of person who you like to speak your identity in terms of your family, well, how's this for something to say? I am a child of the most high God. If you're the sort of person who likes to share your identity in terms of position, how's this? I'm seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. If you're the sort of person who loves to declare from within your identity in face of a world trying to shape you into its mold, how about this? I am a child of God and none of you can tell me otherwise because deep down in my soul, I know this is true.